Why don't you uh, grab your Bible, turn to Zechariah chapter six. Not exactly zipping through Zechariah. <laughs> these, um, these are interesting stories and stuff. One night I dreamed I was a muffler. I woke up exhausted. Sorry. <laughs> I used to actually wake up exhausted. It was funny, when I was young, I, I had real issues with sleepwalking and sleep talking. And I've got stories where my family just sat and talked to me while I was asleep. And I, they were all sitting around talking to me, laughing uh, while I was just sleeping. And uh, my grandparents even, I remember one time I was on a fishing trip and I don't, oftentimes, whatever I was doing that day, I'd be dreaming about it and, and reenacting things. I don't know if any of you guys did that, but uh, we, I was so excited about fishing with my grandpa at Howard Prairie Lake. I remember in the travel trailer, sitting on the edge of the, and I was fishing on the table in the middle of the night. And my, my grandparents, my sisters, they all woke up and they're, what are you doing, Brett? And I'm like, I'm, I'm catching fish, you know? And I was totally asleep the whole time. And they're just talking to me. Uh, one night, the true story, I, I woke up and my furniture was rearranged in my bedroom. Everything except for the waterbed. Uh, if you remember back in the 70s, the waterbed trend, uh, it was a little heavy for me to scooch that around, but the dresser, everything was rearranged. And my door has like a, a, a lock, like where we lived, they were custom, my parents, we made our doors and they had these like deadbolt things that you could, it was me. It wasn't somebody else coming in and rearranging my room. But uh, I'd wake up exhausted during daily doubles in football. I'd wake up in the middle of the night doing, you know, jumping jacks and burpees and calisthenics in the middle of my room and just felt exhausted. Uh, by the end of the, the night. But the, the reason uh, I bring that up is um, you might be thinking, man, I'm exhausted from these dreams and visions that Zachariah is having. I mean, these are kind of crazy visions and some of them pretty weird. Um, and, and what's interesting here in Zechariah chapter six, we're finishing up this, at least this section, uh, you might call it the first section of Zechariah. We're gonna finish it up tonight. Uh, and it's dealing with those visions, all that he received in one night. So uh, can you imagine getting a head full of all these visions? We've taken you know, multiple Wednesday nights and some Sunday mornings to cover these visions. This guy, he had to kind of uh, sort of digest all of these dreams and visions and what have you in one evening. Uh, but just a quick review, uh, if you remember all these visions, first of all, we started with the writer in the uh, myrtle trees. And that was, you know, basically we saw Jesus, the myrtle wood is uh, Israel uh, and the myrtle tree and, and Jesus was there um, seeing uh, the situation of Israel and caring for Israel. Uh, and then we saw the four horn uh, vision. Uh, and, and, uh, and again, some people uh, count this as one. And then the, um, you know, the craftsmen or the blacksmiths with the hammers, remember those guys? They came and smashed the horns and stuff that were, they were basically the nations that were hassling Israel. We see that as kind of one vision here. Uh, some, like I told you, some people see 10 visions. That's one of the places where they split it into two. Uh, but it's the four horns and then the four horns are crushed by the hammers. That's why I see that as one. It's all interactive, uh, uh, the same thing. And then vision three, we saw the measuring line, um, you know, and, uh, and then the uh, measuring out of the temple and what have you. Uh, then we saw God's courtroom, Joshua the high priest, 
who was, uh, you know, standing in, in the courtroom of heaven, if you would. Um, and that was quite a, a vision. The olive tree and the candlestick, we saw that. Or it's talking about the Holy Spirit constantly flowing, giving power uh, to the two witnesses of the book of Revelation. Uh, but also we talked about, you know, Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua the high priest and how that was gonna be uh, locally applied. Um, and then vision number, uh, number six was the flying scroll. We saw that last week. Um, that was the, the scroll, the giant scroll with wings. Uh, we looked at what that was. Um, and then, um, and then uh, last, last week also, we saw the ephah and the talent. Remember the lady that was in the ephah and she was um, a basket case? Remember that lady? And we saw, uh, you know, these women with stork rings, wings flying. This woman, what a weird, that's when the dreams started getting really weird. Uh, the ipa and the talent, uh, the weight and the lid and all that. Now, one of the things that, you know, you need to see in these, um, there, there's kind of, in some ways, the local application of these visions. But even more importantly, and, and more overtly, I gotta say, it's not, this is even a covert thing with the prophet Zechariah but he's also talking overtly about the future, the end times. And um, you know, the vision number one is kind of starts where Jesus sees the trouble of Israel. Um, you, you might even say um, that prophecy is what, uh, what kind of kicks off sort of the end times. Uh, and as these visions go on with the horns and the measuring line and the building of the temple and, uh, and, and all this stuff, we see, if you've been following with us, it's been a moving, you know, chronologically uh, through uh, from the moment God starts to say, I'm gonna start intervening for Israel. That's, that's God's plan in the future. The first half of these dreams are things we're kind of seeing in some ways right now. Um, and then uh, the last half of them we're seeing, it's more futuristic. Um, but the, the later visions here uh, that we've been looking at, speaking of what, what scholars call eschatological Israel or the Israel of the end times. And Zechariah chapter six, our, our text here, we're gonna, we're gonna see that specifically, um, that, that we're speaking of uh, the tribulation period and the beginning of the millennial kingdom is all gonna be talked about here in our um, Zechariah chapter six, and it's the eighth vision. Um, now, by the way, uh, I gotta say, you might say, uh, Brad, I've read other commentaries and heard other sermons, and I, 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 it's totally different. Well, if you notice a, a difference in my teaching, per, perhaps, versus other teachings that you've heard, it might have to do with their view, uh, are they premillennialists? Or, uh, do, or do they believe in amillennialism? Um, are they preterists? Uh, if you take a literal uh, you know, uh, interpretation of Bible eschatology or the end times of study of end times, um, you're gonna hear more of uh, the premillennial view of what people believe about these passages. And, and it has to do with the, you know, we believe in the pre-trib rapture uh, and um, we're gonna be raptured. Then there's gonna be the seven year period called tribulation. Then Christ returns, the second coming. The rapture is not a coming as much as we meet him in the air and we go to be with him. The, the second coming is actually uh, the last part of Revelation. Revelation 19 is when Christ returns and, uh, and that's what you'll, you know, you'll see uh, we are coming with them. How, how's that possible? Well, we were raptured. We were raptured first. Uh, then we get to be up in the you know, marriage feast of the lamb during the seven years of the tribulation. Then we come down. If you're a post-tribber, by the way, it's yo-yo rapture. You go up and then you come right back down. 
Uh, what's the point? Uh, I see a great point in pre-trib rapture uh, because you come, go up to be with the Lord in heaven. And the day with the Lord, by the way, is a thousand years. So how long would that feel like to us? You, some of you might say, oh, seven years is so short to be in heaven. Who knows what that's gonna be like? But when we return, we're gonna return with the Lord, Revelation 19. Now you might say, well, Brett, I think, you know, I get this from time to time. Why don't you teach all the views? You know, you should, you know, cause there's, there's some pastors that do that. Um, amillennials, preterism, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, amill, sawmill, whatever you believe, all those different views that are out there. Um, here's why I don't teach them. I don't believe them. It's also why I don't teach that we should pray to Mary or, or why I teach about praying to Mary. Why don't I teach about praying to Mary? Because I think that's stupid. And I think Mary would say the same thing and definitely Jesus would say that. I don't teach about praying to Mary because I don't agree with it. Um, I think it's just inventions of men doing dumb stuff. Um, and there's nowhere in the Bible, in fact, the Bible actually speaks the opposite. Uh, remember, there's so many things that the church does, and we talked about that a little bit last week, that's just traditions of men, and man, we gotta really watch out, it's so bad. You know, um, you know if you go to some churches, there's statues and uh, images of you know, Peter or angels or even Jesus on a cross and stuff like that. And, and isn't it interesting that one of the 10 commandments says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. That's one of the 10 commandments. Um, and they kind of say, well, we're not really worshiping it as an idol. Oh, just go to Vatican and Rome. You'll see people bowing down and kissing Peter's toe clean off. Like a centuries of kissing a toe as worn as stone toe, clean off. He needs, he's got tomaine poisoning or whatever. Uh, no, I, I, I just think it's ridiculous how they, they really have become worshipers of these images. And I don't wanna, I don't teach that because I don't agree with it. Same thing with all the other views. I have, by the way, spent a lot of time studying the other views. And I get some, some of you guys, Brett, have you ever heard about the preterist view? It's like they write me letters and they send me books and stuff. And I, I have, I've spent a lot of time studying those other views. Uh, I just very much disagree with them. And so I don't um, spend a lot of time teaching about them. I, if I do, I'm actually pointing out the errors of those uh, teachings. The reason I say that is if you're, it depends on who you're listening to. Uh, Zechariah, the book itself, um, the only way it really makes sense, by the way, is if you're a pre-trib pre-millennial kind of view in your eschatology. Otherwise, the book of Zechariah is dizzying and you've got to do all kinds of gyrations to sort of make things make sense and fit. But if you actually just take the Bible as it literally kind of puts everything out, as we, you know, I believe pre-tribbers take the more literal view of the, the biblical interpretation of prophecy, it, it makes the book of Zechariah doable and understandable. And I think that's kind of noteworthy. Um, so, um, so, you know, my responsibility is to teach the word how, uh, you know, I've just been convicted to study it. And by the way, I'm not alone on these views. There's a lot of, uh, you know, real Bible scholars that are alive and dead, more of them, a lot of dead scholars, which are the guys I like to read, by the way. Uh, those are the good ones. Uh, and a lot of people over the centuries have taught the same thing I'm teaching. I'm, it's not like I'm coming up with something new. But my job is to teach the Bible how I believe it. Your responsibility is to search the scriptures daily and see if what I'm saying is true or false. That's what your job is. You know, it's, you gotta remember, you know, Acts 17, 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. Uh, that's what you guys need to do. And, um, uh, and that's kind of an important thing. You know, the whole reason to teach through the scriptures verse by verse is to equip us. 
as a church, to have knowledge of what the Bible says, defending, you know, ready to have an answer to every man that gives you a question, you have an answer. And, um, and so that's kind of why we, uh, we spend the time that we do talking about the things we do. But again, Zechariah, you won't hear a lot of churches teach through the book, especially the ones that are not pre-trib, pre-millennial, because they just don't make sense. Uh, it'd be hard to, you know, you, what do you do if you say all this is figurative, Bible prophecy is all done, there's no more futuristic things to happen. Uh, that makes it really hard to teach the book. But when you read it the way we do, what's amazing is it makes perfect sense and it ties together with other scriptures in the Bible so powerfully, it's, it's really pretty amazing. So we've covered the first seven visions. Let's get to the eighth, uh, Zachariah's eighth vision. Vision number eight is the vision of the four chariots, the four chariots. Um, let's take a look. Let's start out in verse one, Zechariah six, verse one. It says, and I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked And behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. Now again, these are images uh, that um, if you know your Bible, the Bible speaks in types. Uh, Another word is typology. And, And there's some things that we learn about certain types throughout all the other scriptures. So reading your Bible and learning about other stories of the Bible help you interpret the rest of the Bible and it's expositional constancy is what it's called. Um, so when you come up you know, into um, things uh, like chariots and mountains of brass and stuff like that, you think, what is that all about? Well, a lot of it makes perfect sense. One thing you should know is uh, you know, the, the idea of brass and what have you. Um, does anybody remember when you talk about brass in the Bible, it actually is a connotation of something that's radical and important. Does anybody remember what brass symbolizes often? Judgment, that's correct. Um, and there's so many scriptures we could talk about, uh, about the, the idea of brass, um, you know, uh, you know and, and there's these two mountains of brass. Now this should make somebody gonna go, uh-oh, two mountains of brass, that means lots of judgment. And two of them, what's that all about? Well, um, for sake of time tonight, I'm not gonna go into this too much, but, um, Many scholars wonder if this could be speaking of the two mountains of Jerusalem that are most important. Um, And the the valley between them is called the Kidron Valley. And the one mountain is the Mount of Olives. The other mountain is Mount Zion or the Temple Mount. Um, I've brought many of you to those places and we've hiked from the top of the Mount of Olives down to the Kidron Valley up the mountain to uh, Mount Zion or Mount Moriah as it's called in the book of Genesis or the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now you might say, Brett, I've been to there uh, in Jerusalem and those aren't mountains of brass. They've had dirt and dust and broken pottery pieces and stuff. Uh, it's dirt, that's true. <clears throat> but um, the Kidron Valley, which is also called the Valley of Josaphat, probably in the Bible, I, I can't die on that battlefield, but um, some people see the Valley of Jehoshaphat as a valley of judgment and wrath in the end times where God's gonna judge there in the Valley of Josaphat. That's a whole other story, but that fits the narrative <clears throat> if that's the place of judgment because here this is talking about two mountains of brass, speaking of judgment, that might just be there in Jerusalem, Kidron Valley, Mount Moriah, Mount uh, of Olives. Uh, and that, that could be what we're talking about here. And it's talking about the coming judgment, you know, of course, that's gonna be executed there in Jerusalem. Um, so those are some interesting th- things just to, uh, right out of the gate. We'll talk more about these, uh, what's gonna happen here, but, but the idea also of chariots. Uh, it says there will be four chariots 
from between two mountains. So these chariots will come. Now, these chariots, when you think of a chariot, what do you think of? Ben-Hur. Or maybe, you know, some old movie or something of, of chariots. But, but it, what would you think of if, you know, in modern day, the equivalent of the chariot, does anybody know what the equivalent today would be of a chariot? Tanks, yes, uh, that's true. And when we see a tank, th- these are some tanks we took some pictures of at a, a real tank uh, base at Latroon. Uh, one of the things I do for, I give the, the, a certain group of our group, I'm not gonna you know, say who, love to shop. Um, <laughs> and the other group of our, they don't like to shop as much. So I, for the shopping people, I'll spend an hour and a half at a certain store and give some shopping. For another group that doesn't like to shop as much, I go to Latroon where we climb on tanks and we uh, look at tanks and, um, and play with tanks. And here's a picture of my son, Joey, choking out a, this, this tank that Joey's on right here, doing a full uh, naked, is that a naked joke there? A rear naked joke? Um, he's doing this on a Mercurva 4. This, this is a Mercurva 4. If you know what that is, it's one of the most high-tech tanks in the world. Uh, I've got a video that, I, that I've seen of this tank. This tank, it doesn't look that huge under Joey because of the camera angle, but it's a huge tank that, that goes really fast. And there's a video of it that um, is in the tank museum you can watch where this, video, this tank's going full speed through the desert and it's literally catching air in the desert, just kind of going over these dunes. And it'll get like two or three feet in the air and then boom. And then, and then while it's going through the desert, the, the turret at the top's turning and while it's in the air, it fires and hits a target 20 miles away. Like it's an amazing thing to see these Israeli tanks in their action and what have you. Um, you know, and, and the United States, we've helped them with some of their tech, tank technology, but not all of their tank technology. And, um, and the Israelis, they're real polite to us. And they're like, yeah, you know, American tanks are, are great, but the Mercurva 4, like, you know, there's nothing in the world even close to it. And it's kind of interesting. Anyway, don't get me started on tanks. The reason I talk about tanks though, is because you got, that's the imagery you have to have when you talk about these four chariots and the vision of the four chariots. You'd think battle, you'd think warfare and bloodshed and death and stuff. You gotta kinda get the imagery sort of going on there. So you, the tone here is warfare or even conquering. Um, and, um, and these two mountains of brass speak of judgment. Um, and, um, and some scholars, uh, you know, call the Kidron Valley, they, they, they put that as the same as the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which will be a valley of judgment in future times. So this is kind of setting the tone and the stage uh, for the scene here. And, the, um, and, and uh, by the way, brass and the symbology, one of the places we get that um, was the serpent. Remember the brass serpent that bit, you know, that, that um, when people were bit by snakes, Moses made a serpent of brass which speaks of that judgment that came upon Israel because of their sins. And when they looked to the serpent on the pole, uh, they, they were healed. Also, the, the altar was made of brass, which speaks of judgment. So that's, those are just a couple of imageries. That's where I'm not, not just making this stuff up. The idea of brass is something that we see all throughout the Bible uh, linked to uh, judgment. But then we go on and hear more description in verse two. It says, in the first chariot uh, were red horses, and in the second chariot, black horses, and in the third chariot, white horses, and in the fourth chariot, grizzled and bay horses. Um, now this is an interesting thing. Uh, you're saying, Brett, why are the horses in the chariots? Shouldn't they be pulling the chariots? <laughs> well, that's what the King James says here. Uh, the idea is these horses are actually 
pulling chariots. Not, they're not riding along, you know, with people uh, pulling the chariot, not that. Uh, you're like, wow, this is a weird dream. Not, no, it's, it's the horses are linked to these chariots, okay? So gotta, that, gotta get the King Jim, Jimmy language out of there for, for that. The idea is the horses are pulling these chariots. But we have here something that, um, uh, by the way, Zechariah chapter six, I, I'm not gonna pretend to say we know everything about this chapter and what it means and all this stuff. We just have some hints and that's, that's the way I'm gonna put it. We have hints. Um, and uh, and uh, it'd be interesting to see uh, what we're missing here. That's, I guess that's what I would say. Um, so it gives you some good things to think about and pray through and talk about. But, but um, where else do we see, as it's related to judgment, wrath, warfare, where else do we see horses and their colors? <laughs> Revelation chapter six. Would you keep your finger here uh, in our text in Zechariah and flip over to Revelation chapter six. Let's review, before we talk about the colored horses of Zechariah, I think it might help us to review the colored horses in Revelation chapter six. Now, um, in Revelation, you have this divine outline of the book. You know, write the things which thou hast seen. Vision of Jesus, chapter one. You know, and then he, in verse 19 of chapter one, he says, then write the things which are, that's present, and then which things shall be hereafter. So chapter two and three are the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. We're in the church age right now. But then in chapter four, you hear the words come up here. And the heaven is opened up. And, and what do you see? Chapter four and five, the heavenly scene. And you also see the church in heaven there. Which, uh, so to me, the, it's almost like, you know, you see the rapture happen, if you would, in chapter four at the beginning. Um, the things that are gonna happen after the church age. When's the church age over? When the church is raptured. Um, so then you see the, the heavenly scene. Remember the whole scroll, who's worthy to open the title deed to planet earth? We saw that last week. And then, and then you see the, heaven, the church in heaven there. We might even look at that um, uh, if we have time. But in chapter six here, uh, you start to look back on earth. Chapter six is, you know, meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, we've got the tribulation period beginning. So you're in heaven with the church, with the Lord in chapter four and five, but then you see chapter six through 19 is the description of the tribulation period. So let's look at this. It says in chapter six, verse one of Revelation, and I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So the first horseman of the apocalypse. Uh, now, who's the rider on this horse? By the way, this is one of those places where you hear Bible interpretation being very different. Have you ever heard people say that this is Jesus? There's actually some churches and people that say this is Jesus coming and returning. Um, I don't believe that, not even for a second. Um, the first thing you might notice is who's coming with him? Well, if you look who's coming with this horse, we're gonna see a red horse that's war, uh, a th th third horse that's black uh, with balances in his hand that's famine. We're gonna see the fourth horse, the seal of death. Um, these are not good, this is not good company. Um, when we know in Revelation 19, it says when Jesus returns, who's he coming with? Us. Ten thousands of his saints. Um, this is, and again, people when they start jumbling the book of Revelation, the order, I just take Revelation chronologically, the way it's just laid out, and it makes perfect sense. 
But if you start, oh, this is this, is that, and start jumbling the pages and say, then it becomes a matrix, a Rubik's cube that you have a really difficult time trying to sort out. Um, so attempts to determine the symbolism of the rider on the white horse um, has given a lot of differences of, of opinions. Uh, some say that represents Christ and they use Psalm 45 and they also try to use Revelation 19 to support their position. Um, but um, most contemporary Bible expositors, uh, especially of the premillennial school that, that I'm a part of, uh, they would say this is the white horse of the Antichrist. He looks a little like Jesus because that's his whole thing. He's a poser. He's an imitator uh, and he's trying to replace uh, Jesus. Jesus. Um, so, so by the way, the reason I say that is, again, uh, I'm following some of my favorites, you know, Scott, Ironside, Chafer, Walverd, uh, you know, Woodbridge, Pentecost. There's a lot of scholars over the years who've kind of said, no, this, ha this has to be Antichrist. And there's a lot of defense that we don't have time to go in into um, tonight. But this is, this is a great picture of someone who's pretending to be the Messiah. Um, now, by the way, this, this horseman that's coming, he comes with a bow in his hand. Um, interesting word bow, uh, because the word bow, both in the Greek and in the Hebrew, can talk about a bow like a bow and arrow or a bow like a rainbow. You say, well, which one is it? They're not even related. They're both bows, wouldn't you agree? They're both shaped like a bow. And what's interesting is both those, the same words are used not only for, uh, to talk about a weapon, but also interestingly enough about a covenant. Um, and um, that's kind of an interesting sort of thing there uh, that we can talk about this bow uh, as being a covenant. Anybody that knows about the Antichrist, if you read Daniel chapter nine, what's he gonna do? He's gonna make a covenant with the Jews. If you read Daniel nine, you know, the 70 weeks of Daniel and all that stuff. Um, so, you know, basically this guy's gonna come and he's gonna come with, uh, to conquer and, uh, and, and he's given a crown. The idea of the crown is he's gonna be a leader and people are gonna look to him as sort of a, a king. We know the Antichrist is gonna come that way. Um, and the imagery here is in fact, uh, similar to Jesus' the second coming. <laughs> but we have the authentic account of that. Would you keep, now, now, now I'm going second layer. So you got one finger in Zechariah. Keep the, this finger also in Revelation 4 and flip over to chapter 19. I wanna just show you the real coming of Jesus. That's the poser antichrist coming. Uh, look at Revelation 19.11. It says in Revelation 19.11, it says, and I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed, followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword with it, he which would smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does that seem a little better? Like when I read the first one, I'm like, yeah, what a poser. 
you know, chapter six is the Antichrist coming with a little bow in his hand and his white horse and his, his, you know, conquer, conquer, conquer. But he's a poser. He's not the real deal. This is the real deal. This happens, by the way, this happens at the end of the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ, just like we talked about before. But, um, but here, you know, the, the reason I love this, by the way, is, um, you know, this, this, this all uh, is a beautiful picture of Christ coming in good company. The Antichrist gets coming with bad company, if you would. Um, and so, so when we go back to Revelation chapter six now, we see this first horseman, white horse, this is the Antichrist. And um, by the way, the, this coming world leader, um, one of the things that you should be aware of is that this coming world leader, boy, the stage is set more than ever today in the world. Do you understand that? I mean, what a vacuum we have in the world for leadership. You know, we, we see what's going on around the world and you know, the world is on, on kind of the verge and sitting on the edge of our seat of World War III right now because of bad leadership, whether it's corruption or stupidity or senility, whatever it is, leadership around the world is crazy. And the world doesn't trust voting and the world doesn't trust leaders. And it's gotten to kind of this feverish pitch. To me, to me, what we're seeing right now is the preparation for this world leader that's gonna come called uh, Antichrist in the Bible. And there's many other names, by the way. Um, by the way, uh, if you're interested in this of uh, current thing, when we did this in October, 2021, we did the prophecy update on this, the, the Antichrist who's coming on the world stage. And I talked about all the things that are going on in the world today that are perfectly setting the stage for this coming Antichrist and what have you. Um, but, but all that to say, um, you know, uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, what, what does this guy look like here back to, to chapter uh, six? It's, uh, it says, um, I'm, now I'm getting ahead of myself here. It says in ver chapter six, verse one, he's got a bow and he's coming to conquer and to conquer. What is this Antichrist gonna look like? Now, let me share something with you about the Islamic Mahdi. You say, well, who in the world is that? Um, did you know the Muslims have eschatology too? Um, it's interesting because their eschatology is, you know, from not the Bible, but, you know, from Muhammad, the Quran, the, you know, Hadith and the different traditions of the Islamic faith. But if it's, it's really uncanny how the, the Muslim uh, story of their end times sort of matches the biblical story of end times. Only here's the problem. All the players are the opposite. Uh, what do you mean, Brett? Well, what we deem as the Antichrist they deem as the Mahdi. Um, what we say is Jesus the Messiah, they call him the Dajjal. Or maybe you could even call him uh, you know, something else. In fact, let me, let me share with you some of the things here. This is gonna, this is gonna I'm gonna try to do this quickly. Uh, in case you aren't aware, I'm gonna go over uh, in, in lightning speed, the Islamic uh, view of eschatology. And here's what they believe. Are you guys ready for this? And you can jot these down. Uh, if you don't get them all right now, no sweat. You can, uh, but this is how long my list is gonna be, okay? So if you see how tiny that is. Um, so <laughs> um, the Mahdi, the 12th Imam, um, as he's often called, and whether he's called the Mahdi or the 12th Imam has to be 
uh, it depends on what kind of Islam you are. Um, he's the primary Messiah figure. He's a descendant of, of Muhammad, he has to be, um, and bears his name. In fact, his name is going to be Muhammad uh, al-Hassan al-Mahdi, okay? So that's, their, that's the name that he's coming. He's of course gonna be a devout Muslim according to um, Muslim teaching. Um, he's gonna have unparalleled um, uh, spiritual and political and military world leadership. Um, that's what they say. Now, if you know the Bible and the Antichrist that's coming, these are all the things the Antichrist is gonna have. He's gonna be having religious Babylon, political or economic Babylon, and he's gonna worship military according to the Bible. Um, he, he will emerge after great turmoil on the earth. Um, the tribulation starts then the Antichrist comes on the scene. That's interesting. It, uh, the, 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 did you see how opposite these things are? He will establish justice and righteousness through the world. That's the peace treaty that he's gonna have signed. Um, and, um, and make a deal with the Jews and all, all the other nations he's gonna uh, talk about. He's gonna, he's gonna appear, or he's, according to them, he's gonna eradicate tyranny and oppression. Um, Caliph and Imam leader of the Muslims worldwide. Uh, right now, there's a hole in that place. Uh, you know, there's different people trying to become the new Caliph of Islam, but nobody's really measuring up. They, they're waiting. The, the Iranians are, are, they believe chaos has to come so their Mahdi can come into place. And they believe creating chaos will actually bring the Caliph or the 12th Imam into the world. It's a very dangerous thing. That's why the world doesn't want to let the Iranians uh, get the nuclear weapon because of their eschatology. They say, we need to create chaos over the world, then our Mahdi will come. That'd be like Christians saying, if we blow off everybody, then Jesus is gonna come. Uh, that's not what we're saying. We say as Christians, um, Jesus is the Prince of Peace and he's the true Prince of Peace. But anyway, he will lead a, um, a world revolution and establish a new world order. That's what the Muslims teach. That's what Antichrist is gonna do. A new world order, the Bible says Antichrist is gonna do that. Um, he will lead military action against all those that oppose him. Number 11, he will invade many countries. And uh, the Bible talks about that both in the Revelation and the book of Daniel. Um, he will make a seven year peace treaty with uh, the Jews of a priestly lineage. This, this is amazing. They believe their Mahdi is gonna make a peace treaty with the Jews. Just like the Bible says Antichrist is gonna make a peace treaty with the Jews. Uh, what a coincidence, no? Um, uh, but uh, after that, look at number 13. He's gonna conquer Israel for Islam, lead faithful Muslim in a final slaughter of the Jews. Uh, and that's exactly what Antichrist is going to, according to the Bible, attempt to do. Um, uh, he's gonna establish the Islamic, Islamic world headquarters in Jerusalem. That's where Antichrist is gonna establish his headquarters according to the book of Daniel. How long do you think he's gonna rule for? The Muslims say their Antichrist will rule for seven years, their, their, their Messiah figure. Uh, number 16, uh, you can look all this stuff up. Uh, um, number 16, the, uh, he will cause Islam to be the only religion practiced. Number 17, appear riding on a white horse. Uh, by the way, on this one, I, I had a buddy of mine um, who uh, grew up in uh, Iran and fought for the, uh, the you know, Revolutionary Guard in Iran. He was one of those guys. And he actually, actually escaped and, and ended up in the United States and ended up in Portland. And he worked down in downtown Portland uh, uh, at a conference center. His name was Beirus, and he was a really cool guy. And I got to talk to him a lot about the whole 
Iranian situation and talked about the Mahdi. And he said that one of the things that made him run away, because when he, when he was fleeing, it was, remember when the uh, uh, Iraq and Iran were at war? It was a horrible war between Iran and Iraq. Um, but when they were at war, this literally, he said, this is what happened. We'd be sitting in our military camp in our uniforms and our guns and we'd be sitting there. And, but it was really hard to get the, the military motivated because they didn't really know what they were fighting for uh, and it was bloody and people were dying and they were just frustrated and tired. But then they would um, see this white horse ride through their camp and this guy wearing a white turban and a white flowy outfit and running through, whoa, 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 you know, riding through the camp. And Beirut, and they, they, they were all told by the commanding, that's the mom, that's the 12th imam, that's, that's Mahdi. And we got to follow him into battle. And so they'd all, okay, and they'd get their stuff and go and, and they'd, uh, they'd follow this horse into battle. They literally did that. Until one afternoon, they caught the guy who was riding the, red, the white horse and had the fancy turban. And it was one of their other commanding officers. They realized they'd been duped, that it wasn't really the Mahdi. Um, and... Um, and they beat him up, actually. <laughs> that's a long story. They beat him up. But, but, um, but that, that's what was inspiring them, is the Mahdi riding through the camp, uh, and even though it was a total lie. Um, but, but he since escaped and became a Christian. It's a great story. But uh, number 18, he, uh, the, 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 the Muslim Messiah, if you would, uh, number 18, will discover manuscripts that he will use to argue with the Jews, converting some to Islam. <laughs> That's like one of the loudest phones I've ever heard right there. That's got some volume right there. <laughs> Number 19, uh, he will rediscover the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to Jerusalem. That's an interesting little tidbit. <clears throat> Number 20, he will have supernatural power from a law over wind, rain, and crops. By the way, uh, the Antichrist will appear to have supernatural powers in the Bible. The Bible tells us that. Number 21, he will possess huge amounts of wealth. Um, the Bible says that about the Antichrist. Number 22, loved by all the people of the earth. Antichrist is gonna be extremely popular in the world and he's gonna dupe everybody, at least in the first half of the tribulation. Um, now, um, uh, uh, by the way, the, in the Bible, the Antichrist will have a false prophet who will come with him. Do you guys remember that? So um, that's interesting. In Islam, guess who's gonna be uh, his, side, his sidekick? Who's gonna be the Mahdi sidekick? Jesus of the Bible. That's what, the, that's what the Muslim believes, that you know, their, their 12th imam is gonna come and then Jesus who died on the cross and all that stuff, uh, he's going to be, and they believe he's just a prophet. They don't believe Jesus is the son of God. In fact, on the Dome of the Rock Shrine, the Golden Dome over in the Temple Mount, up on, in, in you know, writing, it says, you know, God does not have a begotten, nor does he beget. Uh, so it's a statement on the top of that building. It goes all the way on the building saying that God doesn't have a son. But they do believe that Jesus of Christianity um, will be sort of the sidekick of, the, of the, uh, um, the, um, the, the Muslim Messiah. The Bible says the Antichrist will have a sidekick. He'll be called the false prophet. Are you guys with me so far? Is this confusing? Giving you a headache yet? Uh, okay. Um, also, just a reminder, in the Bible, Jesus returns in the Bible to defend the Jews on a second coming from a military attack by a vast coalition of nations in the Valley of Armageddon. You guys remember all that? Listen to what the Islamic, um, the Islamic believes uh, in their uh, eschatology. So you got the, the Mahdi and his, and his uh, sidekick, which they believe is Jesus. But actually someone comes and causes all kinds of trouble for them. His name is Dajjal. 
Uh, Dajjal will gain a great Jewish following and claim to be the Jesus, Jesus and fight against the Mahdi uh, of, the, um, of the Muslim Jesus. Uh, dizzying how much the two eschatologies match the story point for point, uh, except one is true and one is false. Um, and uh, as it turns out, um, you know, um, there's all kinds of things we could talk about about the Mahdi. The reason I go into that is because this, this picture in Revelation chapter six, um, we see this coming guy on a white horse. This, this is what I, I wonder if, if the Islamic world, now you say, Brett, that's not the whole world. Why would it just be the Islamic world? You have to understand, it, it might be just that that gets the Islamic world to come on board with the Antichrist global plan. Um, and then the rest of the world's gonna follow. It's not gonna be just a Muslim thing. But it is interesting that the Islamic eschatology matches really what satanics, the satanic plan of Antichrist, it matches the Islamic plan, kind of interestingly enough. So point for point, things match up. Uh, only the characters are on the opposite sides. Um, how much will the uh, Muslims pay, play a role in the last days? Um, it is interesting. We talked about this last week in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Mystery Babylon, the old Roman Empire. If you look at a map of the old Roman Empire, there's a lot of Middle Eastern nations that are included in North Africa and all around in the Middle East and up and around, uh, up and into uh, what, what, is, what is Europe. Uh, but a large part of the Islamic uh, Roman Empire is gonna be a part of the iron and legs. Remember the iron and leg, the iron legs, and then the feet were part of iron and what? Clay. Those 10 nations are gonna be a mix of Europe and the Arabs. And it's gonna be a part of the uh, end times and the uh, whole s stage being set for this coming world leader. Well, I'm only on the white horse. Let's, let's keep going. Uh, chapter six, we're in Revelation. Revelation chapter six still. Um, so you got the white horse uh, in uh, verses, uh, verse two. And then verse three, you've got the red horse. Um, for speed, uh, it just says, uh, when he had opened the second seal, I heard a second beast say, come and see. And there went out a horse that was red and power was given to him that uh, take peace from the earth. So the red horse is warfare. And then verses five and six, when he had opened the third seal, uh, the third beast say, come and see. And I, I beheld and lo, a black horse. And he had a pair of balances in his hand. Um, by the way, this, this is a, a picture of, inf of, of you know, inflation that sort of leads to um, famine even, kind of interestingly enough, the scales and all that. Uh, we, it's interesting that we're seeing inflation in the United States and around the world, um, and it's becoming a big issue, and people are starting to get up, up in a, a tizzy. Uh, you know, if you wanna get, if get somebody mad, don't get nursing, nursing mothers mad. Um, but right now, we're struggling. Uh, in fact, this article um, you know, that I came across, not shocking, hurt, angry, anxious, scared, uh, converging crisis uh, lead to US baby formula shortage. Um, and, it's, and it's very serious. You know, and uh, if maybe you saw last week on one of the last um, Ben Psaki uh, press conferences, they said, you know, what are these women gonna do? There's no more formula. And she said, you know, consult your doctor. Uh, it's like, Wait, what about the inflation and the lack of you know, baby formula and stuff? Um, uh, I thought this was great. Babylon B strikes again here. With formula shortage, the more, more babies switching to whey protein powder. <laughs> uh, sorry. Back to Revelation chapter six. Um, 
But famine, famine, we're seeing the potential of famine to a whole new level right now. Like the stage is again being set for these end time scenarios. Um, but there, in, uh, it says in verse seven of chapter six of Revelation, then he'd opened the fourth seal. I heard a voice in the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. Interesting Greek word for pale. The word uh, is um, chloros, which is like where we get chlorine or bleach or what have you. You say, Brett, this sounds horrible. What's that one? Death and hell. You're like, Brett, this is really encouraging. Well, I love Luke chapter 21, verse 36. People, people that are, you know, different uh, eschatology than us, they say, you guys just hope the rapture happens before the tribulation. And I would say, yep, that's right. And it's more than hope. I'm glad that we have the evidence in the Bible. But I love what Jesus said, watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the son of man. So um, what a cool thing that we have, um, you know, uh, the hope of being taken away before all this stuff comes, comes down, the tribulation period, because we're gonna be taken out. Uh, don't forget 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, this is what we're supposed to do. When we're, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. That's rapture in the Latin. Uh, um, is the word caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, what do we do? Comfort one another with these words. Um, the rapture of the church should be a comforting word. It's meant to be a comforting word because things could get really bad even before the rapture and what have you. So all that to say, um, back to, uh, so, so we see in book of Revelation, we see these kind of colored horses, are the exact same colors of the horses in Zechariah? No, and that's where it gets kind of confusing. Um, but check it out. Let's go back to Zechariah now, back to, back to, back to the Hall of Justice here. Um, we see these colored horses. We do see similar, red and black. Um, but what's this grizzled and bay horses? There's some tricky translational issues with those words. And your newer translations say different things. Um, but the word grizzled, most scholars, uh, Hebrew scholars would say um, it, it can mean sort of spotted. Uh, the word dappled is, um, uh, or spotted uh, horses. Maybe they're Appaloosas or something like that. I don't know. Maybe uh, Little Joe's horse there in Bozana. Um, what was his, a Mustang, I think, or something? Uh, who knows? It's gonna be speckled. But then the bay horse there means strong. Maybe it's like one of those big, uh, you know, strong, uh, um, you know, what? Yes, Clydesdale. But there's another one. Is, is Dennis Dan here? He's got, have you guys seen Dennis Dan ride his horse around Westland? He's got a, it's awesome. What are those called again? Not at Appaloosa. He's got these huge horses. Anyway, um, I wonder if it's gonna be like a big, giant, muscular horse like that. But we don't know for sure. Uh, but the, so we see, we start okay with red and black and white, but then these speckled and, and then the super strong horse, that's where it doesn't really line up as much with Revelation. But it shouldn't cause any panic. Uh, we'll see as we keep going. Back to this uh, vision here. Um, uh, so um, all that to say, um, let's see, where are we here? Uh, <laughs> Zechariah, uh, the Bible, God. Oh yeah, okay, here we are. Verse four, let's go to verse four. It says here in verse four, then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Okay, good. This is that question. Remember the pattern we see in all these visions? There was always that question, and that's great because it brings a little clarity. 
I've already tried to clear up some things, but let's see what the angel says. This is where it really gets to it. It says in verse five, and the angel answered and said unto me, these are the four spirits of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. Now this is interesting because um, these spirits, uh, familiar word, by the way, the word spirit uh, is the, the Hebrew word ruach, the Greek word pneuma, which means wind or breath. So when the word spirits are used, you have to be kind of careful about that um, because we don't want to say it's the Holy Spirit necessarily every time. But, um, but there is something that's used here in end times eschatology t- language talking about the four winds, okay? Do you guys remember talk, hearing about the four winds or the four ruachs in the Hebrew? Um, and it's, it's, it's sort of an idiom like when somebody says the four corners of the earth. Um, now, let me put some fires out here. Some of you guys are like, yeah, the, the earth doesn't have four corners. We know the earth is round. And what a horrible, stupid thing the Bible said. Well, we still say that. People still use idioms that are not technically correct, but they do mean the same thing. You probably have said it in your own life, something really stupid. You said that the, it, I was just watching the sun rise. Does the sun really rise? No, idiot. <laughs> no, see, see my problem there? Uh, when you say the sun rises, it's an idiom. We know the sun is not rising, but we know the earth is rotating. And the, you know, uh, on the, the, it's, not, it's not the sun rising. It appears to be rising. But in the same way, the Bible employs the four winds, speaking of the four corners, north, south, east, and west of the earth. And by the way, if you think the Bible doesn't know that the earth is round, even though most people didn't until fairly modern history, it really wasn't and, you know, until the 1400s, we kind of realized, oh, wow, the earth really is round. Um, but the Bible said long before Columbus sailed, um, we saw in Isaiah and the book of Job, it was called the sphere of the earth. Um, and it, and it says the earth is hung upon nothing. Like who knew that back in the old days? Uh, but all that to say, um, this language is similar language, um, that we, that we need to kind of look at revelation chapter seven. You can jot this down in your notes. Um, this language is similar. We, we just read part of chapter six of Revelation, starting the tribulation period. But as we get into the tribulation in chapter seven of Revelation, it says, and after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor any tree. So first we see the horses, Revelation six. Now we see the four winds in Revelation chapter seven. Um, So most scholars at least agree on this, that we're talking about the tribulation period of Revelation 6 and 7. And there's some similar language, the four horses, the four winds. Um, And so that kind of gets us back to talking about these four chariots that are being talked about. Um, So it goes on in verse six and says, the black horses which are therein go forth into the north country and the uh, the white ones go forth after them and the grizzled go toward the south country. And the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. Then cried he unto me and spake unto me saying, behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. What's going on here? Don't know for sure. Uh, That's just the honest answer. Um, There's a lot of speculation, none of which I've really kind of said 
uh, you know, that, that really makes sense uh, as I've read different people on this stuff. But it is somewhat of a mystery, regardless of what it means. Does, do you sense bad news here? I sense bad news because of the language of Revelation 6 and 7 and the imagery of Zechariah, they do are sort of commensurate. But also these horses, do you see what they do there in verse 7? Uh, the bay went forth and sought to, uh, that they might walk to and fro over the earth. What, is, what does that remind you of? Let's remember a few things of evil that the Bible talks about. First Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may de devour. Do you remember when um, Job was attacked by the devil and, and Job um, you know, was accused before the Lord by Satan himself? Do you remember what Satan said in Job chapter two, verse two, the Lord said unto Satan, from whence comest thou? And, and Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Um, notice this, to and fro along with up and down, the same language that's used here. It's similar language used of Satan himself. I think that's not something we should just totally uh, ignore. So, you know, um, so minimally, we're, we're seeing horses going to and fro all over the earth um, from the four winds, from the, which are the four spirits. But in Revelation 7, you know, those four spirits that we read about, it's almost like the angels are holding back these winds um, that they should not blow on the earth or the sea, but there's a point where they're gonna let them go. That's the idea. So this really could be talking about just the, the bad times of the tribulation that are gonna come. And, um, and so you can do work on that. You can kind of prepare for that. But the idea is mostly this is gonna be bad stuff. And that's the end of the vision right there. End of the vision is verse eight. Now, we, um, we, you say, well, Brad, okay, so if this is talking about the tribulation period, possibly, uh, if you compare it to the book of Revelation, there's all kinds of imagery that's similar um, and it's bad these uh, things going to and fro kind of remind us of Satan and stuff. Well, what, what, what else is gonna happen? Well, that's the second half of this chapter and you might see them as being totally unrelated. But after the tribulation period, something really cool is gonna happen. And this is what we see pictured in the last part of this chapter. Let's take a look in verse nine. It says in verse nine, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, take of them of the captivity, even Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, which are come from Babylon. Now, don't, this is not a vision. This is not a dream. This is actually something, whew, that's literally happening. Uh, I like this. We can understand this. Um, and it says, these guys are coming. These, these four guys are coming from Babylon. Um, and come thou the same day and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Then verse 11, take silver and gold and make crowns and set upon them the head of Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Now, does anybody see anything wrong here? What's wrong with this picture? Priest and king, priest and king. good eye, that's right. In the Bible, uh, you're not really supposed to be priest and king. But here, the Lord is telling Zechariah, these dudes are coming from Babylon, they're bringing a bunch of crowns. Now let's stop about and talk about the crowns just for a second. Um, did you remember in the, the, the Revelation account, how many crowns is the Antichrist wearing in Revelation chapter six? Just one, he's wearing a crown. But in Revelation 19, when we read the real story, what, what was on Jesus's head? Many crowns, that's something that's noteworthy. 
And maybe you spotted that. Um, <clears throat> but these, these guys, and by the way, these names like Heldai means the Lord's world. Tobijah means Yahweh is good. Uh, Jediah uh, means Yahweh knows. And these guys came uh, from Babylon <laughs> with silver and gold um, making crowns. Um, and what are they supposed to do? Set those crowns on Joshua, as it turns out. Now, we've, we've already been induced to, introduced to Joshua. He's the high priest during this time. And remember, we saw him in the courtroom scene. <laughs> and do you remember what happened to him in the courtroom scene? He was guilty and dirty with dirty clothes, but what happened? He was given new clothes, remember that? And he was declared righteous. And we talked about being robed in the Lord's righteousness. Great story. <clears throat> but that all plays into this. Now we see Joshua um, seating, seated here uh, and, and suddenly this priest is having all these crowns. Now, what's going on here? Um, the high priest, the crown, crowns um, uh, are, you know, obviously king, but why is a priest here being crowned? Um, a couple things. The name Joshua is Yeshua in the Hebrew, which in the Greek we called him, you know, he's called Jesus, but he's, he was actually called Yeshua even in Bible times. <coughs> Excuse me, got that dry tickle again. Don't worry, I'm good. Um, but, uh, but all that to say, uh, you know, this, is it a coincidence that the high priest, now, if you know your Bible, was Jesus ever called a high priest? Of course. Hebrews says Jesus is our high priest. He was tempted at all points like as we were. Um, but, um, but now we're getting into something the Bible actually talks a lot about. Um, you know, um, like for example, what does the Bible say about who can't be priest and king? Well, the Bible sort of teaches that no one can be priest, king, or prophet, all three of those together, or any two of the, the, the four, prophet, priest, king. That's reserved for Jesus. But as it turns out in 2 Chronicles, do you guys remember what happened in 2 Chronicles 26, verses 16 through 21? That's when King Uzziah uh, presumed to try to serve both in uh, priest and kingly roles, and that didn't work out so well for him, if you recall. Um, so that was never approved of in the Bible. So then the next question might be then, who can be priest and king in the Bible? Well, um, there, anybody, if you said how many people are, are, how many groups of people or people are there that can be priest and king? Anybody? Oh, some of you guys are cheating. You're already way ahead of me. Um, some would say only one, only Jesus. And, and, and technically that's kind of right in some ways. If you just said Jesus, you'd get an A. But there's actually a bonus credit thing here that, that I wanna kind of take you. Because, um, you know, Jesus being, you know, uh, he's, he's our high priest. Um, he's, um, he, uh, we know that Jesus is called priest and king. We know that. But there's another guy in the Bible. His name is, so we got Jesus number one, but the second guy is Melchizedek. Do you guys remember Melchizedek? He served in both roles. Um, and if you recall there, Melchizedek, Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, he was called the king of Salem. Um, I didn't see him on the ballot for the Oregon uh, governorship here. <laughs> last night, but uh, Abraham, Abraham tithes money to Melchizedek and worships him. Um, and so you, you got this mysterious character called Melchizedek. And then when you read the book of Hebrews, mentioned in Hebrews chapter seven, it says that Jesus is coming to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Brett, what's the Melchizedekian priestly order? Um, well, it's just this mysterious guy who we believe is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, also called a Christophany or a Theophany. 
Melchizedek was this mysterious king that was worshiped by Abraham and received tithes. And there's even communion, bread and wine linked to Melchizedek. It's a, it's a great thing. If you wanna brush up on Melchizedek, then uh, go to our Genesis 14 through the Bible study. We talked all about Melchizedek. So Melchizedek was somebody who was prophet, and, or pardon me, priest and king and seemed to get away with it. But I think you can make a real argument that, that was Jesus, the Melchizedekian order of Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, and Hebrews even talks about that. But who else? Um, can I have you turn one more? We're almost done. To uh, Revelation. Go back to Revelation with me real quick. Chapter four. I already told you, Revelation chapter one, things which passed, Jesus. Two and three, things which are, the church age. Chapter four, the rapture of the church, where John is taken up into heaven. And what does he see in heaven? That's the interesting thing. And um, in chapter um, in Revelation chapter five, let's look at chapter five. Um, remember we saw a part of this last week, verse five. Go, go to chapter five, verse five. One of the elders said to me, weep not, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book to loose the seven seals. Remember the title deed to planet earth we talked about last week? But it goes on in verse six and says, and I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne and the four beasts and the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. That's Jesus. Having seven horns and seven eyes. Zechariah chapter three, we talked about the seven, seven eyes. Remember, this is all linked. This is all very much linked. Uh, verse seven, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and 20 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of order, odors or fragrances, which are the prayers of the saints. There's little vials in heaven that are full of prayers of the saints. Have you ever wondered what your vial's gonna look like when you get to heaven? Some of you guys are gonna have barrels, truck, you know, some of you, hey, bring in that person's prayers. Others of you are gonna have little communion cups, like, oh, here's, here's their prayer. Are you a prayer person? Because I think that's something you take to heaven with you, by the way, is the prayers of the saints. And they're gonna be stored in little jars, uh, it says here. <laughs> kind of interesting. Verse nine, and they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. Wait a minute, who's the us here? Who was redeemed? Has redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred tongue, people and nation and hath made us unto our God kings and priests that we shall reign on the earth. This is where we see the third group that's gonna be able to be kings and priests. And it, it's the third group is us. Um, you got Jesus, Melchizedek and us. Only, it's not gonna happen. So you might say only Jesus was really the priest and king on the earth. But when we're taken up into heaven, we get to serve because of Jesus, because he redeemed us and, and saved us, as it says there in verse uh, nine, we get to rule and reign with him, both as priests and kings. It says there in the tribulation. So whoever said us over here, you were doing your homework. Uh, that's good. <laughs> but um, that's gonna be, what a privilege if you think about that for just a half a second. After the rapture of the church and the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, one of the things I think we're gonna be doing for all of eternity is serving as priests and kings in eternity. Um, so that's gonna be quite a deal. Well, um, the, the, these guys made crowns and they placed their crowns back to Zechariah 
on Joshua the, the high priest's head, which I think this is, Joshua the high priest is, is suddenly a picture of Jesus himself, the king. Um, and, and this is a symbol of that, a picture of that. Um, as we keep reading, now we talk about Jesus himself. It's like the Bible doesn't even observe a switch of gears. In verse 12, it says, um, well, verse 11 says, then take uh, silver and gold, make crowns, plural, uh, and set them on the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, thy priest. And speak unto him, saying, thus speaketh the Lord of the host, saying, behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place. He shall build the temple of the Lord even he shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. This is where we know now we're talking about Jesus. There's no, there's no uh, lack of clarity here. And Jesus in the millennial kingdom, after the rapture of the church, seven year tribulation period, Antichrist rules for those seven years, Christ returns the Battle of Armageddon establishes his kingdom. There he's gonna rule and reign uh, forevermore. Um, interesting, notice at the beginning of verse, um, uh, verse 12, uh, you know, the, they say, behold the man. That's an interesting phrase. Look at this man. Um, you know who else said that was Pontius Pilate, if you recall, um, to be judged, you know, by the crowd, look at the man, look at him. Pontius Pilate said, now Jesus in his glory, they're gonna say, look at the man. He's the one who's gonna be crowned king of kings, lord of lords. Uh, what a powerful thing. And he's called the branch. Now, by the way, uh, this, this is something that's not new if you've been going through the Bible with us. Uh, Jesus is called the branch prophetically uh, and, um, and in otherwise in, in the Bible in many places. These are my favorite, some of my favorite scriptures uh, where he's mentioned as the branch. So this is not a new idea. And Isaiah talks about how he sprouted out of the ground and became a tree and then he became the branch. Um, and, he's, and the branch was, speaks of his kingship as he's the root and the branch of David who is rightful heir to the throne. That's why they call him uh, the branch and what have you. Well, and then verse 12, we also see there uh, the millennial temple. Who's gonna build the millennial temple? And, and when, does anyone remember what book of the Bible did we talk most about the millennial temple? Anyone? Yes, Ezekiel. We went through chapter after chapter talking about the dimensions and what's gonna be included of the millennial kingdom temple. Uh, remember, there's gonna be a temple in tribulation that's gonna be defiled and that one will be destroyed but then the next temple would be the millennial kingdom temple. And who's gonna build it? Uh, it says, even he, this, this king of kings, verse 13, shall build it there in verse 13. Um, even he shall build it and rule upon his throne um, as it says here. So um, verse 14 goes on. So we got priest and king building the temple. Um, and what does it say? Verse, verse 14, he, he, and, the, and the crowns shall be to Helem and to Tobijah, to Jediah and to uh, Hen, uh, the son of Zephaniah, for a memorial in the temple to the Lord. Um, interesting, so these guys are gonna literally make crowns, these, these four guys that were mentioned there in verse 10, and they're gonna make them of gold and silver, and then what are they supposed to do? Put them in the temple to remind people that there's a king coming. 
And this is interesting because this is all we know about this in the Bible. But later on, the Jews did just that. They made a bunch of crowns and hung them in the windows and openings of the temple to remind them of the coming king. Kind of cool, as it turns out. Um, So verse 15, and they that are far off shall come and build uh, in, in the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. There's a little bit of a local application because they're rebuilding the temple, uh, but there's also the prophetic one where Joshua the high priest is sitting there with the crowns as a symbol, but it's speaking of the ultimate coming of Christ in the millennial temple. Uh, his gaze goes past Zachariah's time and goes all the way into current days. So um, you say, Brent, this is great. What, I kind of like to go home with stuff to do. Uh, like, what am I supposed to do with Zechariah chapter six? Well, there's a couple things real quick. Number one, um, I, it makes this, this, this little chapter, as weird as it is, it makes me think about, number one, the reality of the situation, um, that Christ is coming. And it's not just some fairy or fantasy, it's a fairy tale. It's, you know, there's, there's legitimate things that are happening in the world right now to point that Christ is on the move and that he's coming soon. And so um, there's people that are living in this dark world that are still unsaved. And the reality of Christ's return and the Antichrist and the tribulation, it makes me really want to um, be all about the Lord and be ready for his return, be preaching the gospel. Um, This should light a fire on us to live as last days Christians and not just to be chilling as everybody else, you know, a lot of generations before us just kind of live as if things are gonna go on. Um, people talked about after coronavirus, are we ever gonna get back to normal? Um, you know, you look at some of the stuff in the world that's going on today and you, you see, man, that toothpaste can't be put back in the tube. Nuclear weapons, that's a toothpaste that can't be put back in the tube. We got nuclear weapons in the world and we're getting crazier and crazier people that have, have them. Um, and the Bible speaks of nuclear weapons being used in the last days. And um, I mean, there's things happening that we're just seeing and I could go on and on. That's what prophecy updates are about. So the reality of the situation, number one, but it also causes you and me to think about, we need to be prepared for the millennial kingdom. That's times coming. And what are we gonna be doing as Christians? Ruling and reigning with Christ as priests and kings. And you say, well, what does that have to do with today? Well, listen, what you're going through in this lifetime has something to do with how you're gonna be able to serve in the next. The, the suffering you're going through today will somehow play in eternity. And the Bible talks all about that. The rewards that you get for how you live this life will, will somehow affect how you live in the next life, in the millennial kingdom. And so um, if you hate this life, you're like, man, I feel like I'm going through boot camp. That might just be it. You might be going through boot camp. This, this life wasn't meant to be a, a, a playground. It was meant to be a battleground. And we were fighting a fight. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, power, spiritual wickedness and high places. No wonder things are hard on this life. But the Lord says, all of this is to equip you and prepare you. I love what Philippians, and we'll end with this. Philippians 1, 21 through 26. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, This is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I want not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart, to be with Christ. By the way, you that believe in soul sleep, uh, Paul didn't understand soul sleep, I guess, because he said, man, if I die, I'll be with Christ. 
And I believe that that's what happens. I don't believe in soul sleep, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. I'd rather die. I desire to die and be with the Lord, he says, which is far better. Nevertheless, verse 24, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. In other words, I'm here for a reason. Um, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy and faith. I'm here to help you and give you joy and faith that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Christ Jesus for me by my coming to you again. In other words, we should use the time now to redeem the time to do what the Lord's called us to do. That's, that's what I walk away. So here's the eight visions. Man, congratulations, you made it through the first section of Zechariah. A uh, little bit of a headache, uh, but it's good stuff, amen? Amen, amen. Well, Lord, as we conclude tonight, we're thankful again for your word. Um, Some of this stuff we don't understand. We look at it as somewhat of a mystery, but we see dots being connected. We see things happening. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have better understanding of your word and also give us that end times view, Lord. You tell us that we're to um, watch and wait and be ready, be sober and vigilant, um, that that day that comes doesn't overtake us as a day like the thief in the night but instead that we're watching and waiting for your return. So equip your church, prepare your church, Lord. Bless these who've taken this time to study this tricky passage, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.